hello and welcome back. Last week we discussed self-care, self-love, and how to reduce stress and anxiety. Setting up routines, identifying triggers, and changing your thought patterns are all ways to help you ease the stresses of everyday life. We also shared our 30-day self-care challenge, so don't forget to download the challenge from the show notes at lovethegreenlife.org podcast. Today, we are sharing some super simple ways to make your backyard more wildlife friendly. You'll be surprised to learn that you probably already have several of them and you don't even know it. We're even going to share with you how to certify your yard as an official wildlife habitat. Bonus for teachers, we'll tell you how you can plant, grow, and register your own monarch way station for your school. Okay, green team, let's get started. Hi, I'm Jess Taylor. And I'm Natalie Ringeis. And we love the green life. Welcome to our podcast. We are both teachers, mamas, nature lovers, and passionate about changing the world we live in and helping to save the planet by inspiring others. Join us as we discuss practical ways to live a more sustainable, healthy, and green life for you, your family, and even your fur babies. Love the Green Life is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that promotes cruelty-free, chemical-free, and compassionate living. You can learn more about us and what we do at lovethegreenlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram at lovethegreenlife.org. Today, we're going to be sharing with you five elements of a high-quality backyard wildlife habitat. All of the tips that we share with you today to work on your backyard are all from the National Wildlife Federation, and they're all the elements that they use that you would have to submit in order to get your backyard certified as an official wildlife habitat. We actually certified our wildlife habitat at my house. So I'm excited to share with you guys today about how to do this. And even if you're not interested in officially certifying your yard, you can take some of these tips even just to help green up your yard, provide some food, shelter, that kind of stuff for the animals and wildlife that live in your yard. So really anyone can create this haven for your local wildlife that's not just deer and raccoon and stuff like that. That's even birds, pollinators. You could turn your yard, even just a balcony container garden. So even if you're like, I don't even have a yard, you definitely can provide some of these things in your smaller spaces. It could even be a schoolyard. So you can certify if you're a teacher and you have like gardening spaces at your school, you can even certify that. It could be a workspace. I've actually seen the sign at a business before. It could be a roadside green space. Anything can be certified. And it's pretty easy to do it. It's not as overwhelming as it seems. When you certify, it's a $20 application fee, and that goes straight to the National Wildlife Federation program. And then if you choose to have one of the signs, then you pay more. I have the metal sign in my yard. It's really cute. We'll have all this info in our show notes for you, as well as the website. If you go on there, you can see the sign. It's really cute. We have it on a post in our yard. When you get that, you also become a one-year member of the National Wildlife Federation, and you get a subscription to their magazine, you get a discount on their merchandise, which includes feeders and bird baths. So it's pretty cool. And then all that money goes to support a nonprofit. And if you don't know anything really about the National Wildlife Federation, they do stuff with Plains for Wildlife as well as Save Butterflies program that they have. And we're going to talk about a pollinator challenge later. So the certification process goes through several different elements. And those are what we're going to go through with you today. So you can kind of see what you might already be doing and things that you could do to add 
add to your garden? So I do want to touch base on like why you should be doing this because a lot of the people that listen to our podcast, I think they're already environmentalists. They're probably people that love nature and love hiking. But mm-hmm. when it comes to taking the time and effort to put a space in your yard, you know, for a raccoon, I know that that could be a hard sell for my husband. Like what you're, you're inviting what varmint into my <laughs> kingdom. <laughs> Here's why you want to take care of the animals, the fauna that's in your area, because first of all, in all ecosystems, complexity is health. Simplicity makes biosystems extremely vulnerable. Having a diverse culture of animals and wildlife in your neighborhood, in your school, in your area is going to help balance the planet and balance the earth. And you're just contributing to that complexity, which will contribute to the health. Right now with urban sprawl and the new homes, all the new construction, very expensive new construction, thank you, 2020, (laughs) is going on. It's really destroying a ton of natural habitats Mm -hmm. that have been huge changes to the land, the water, the places that these animals once knew. Every habitat, garden, every wildlife refuge that you create is a step toward replenishing those resources for wildlife. So you're helping bees, butterflies, birds, the amphibians, everything. And adding pollinator-friendly, monarch-friendly plants when you like certify your garden or your space, it also can count towards all sorts of, you can get grants and things to continue your programs, even in your home, in your school. Everything counts towards the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge, which is really a fun thing to get your kids involved if you're home homeschooling or homesteading. Mm -hmm. It's a great learning opportunity for your family. If you have kids, this is a good summer project for you to do. Mm -hmm. So this is something that I think everybody can have a little taste of helping the earth. Yeah, definitely. And getting your kids involved is really key. Teaching them at a young age how to care for nature and wildlife is going to really create well-rounded little human beings as they grow. So, yeah, And I know my son in particular, just when we lay out bird seed, he gets so excited when a little birdie is on his pile of seeds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he gets so excited and he's just, he becomes the most still calm five-year-old that you ever thought possible because he doesn't want to scare it away. So it it really, I don't know. I've really enjoyed watching it teach stillness to my kids of what it means to just observe nature and to be quiet and still and just to enjoy a moment like that. I think that's really powerful for them. Well, I get up early and go out and fill all of our feeders in the morning before my son gets up because it takes a while. And the one day he got up early and I didn't get out there. So I said, all right, I guess you're going to come out with me. And he was amazing at helping, listening, you know, all of that stuff to fill all the feeders. You know, we have squirrels, we have everything, birds, we have deer. We have deer. I know. I love all your deer pictures. Yeah. The deer just like live in our yard. Sometimes they're out there even in the morning when I go, cause I go out pretty early. Sometimes they're out there standing and the feeders are all empty from nighttime. And so they'll step back, but they don't run away. Cause they're like, ah, oh, she's the girl with the food. <laughs> <laughs> we won't leave here. So, um, yeah, but it's just, it's wonderful. He gets so excited to help fill all the feeders. And I feel like it's teaching him what it's kind of like being on a farm, getting up early and going outside and feeding. It's just preparing us for when we have that animal sanctuary one day. Yes. (laughs) 
my dream, not my husband's, but my dream. <laughs> yes. Well, my dream is to have my own like massive wildlife mm-hmm. reserve with trails in the woods, with a huge natural playground and tree oh, houses. So I've always yes. been, up, I've been obsessed with tree houses my whole life. <laughs> There was a Berenstein Bears book where they oh. had a tree house. Yeah. And, that, and I think I checked out that book an ungodly amount of times in second, third grade. Is that a tree house inside like their tree house? They like built an extra one and it had like a no girls allowed sign oh. on it <laughs> and it. a pulley system. Berenstein and I think they were eating like honeysuckle and oh, I, I, I vividly remember this text. <laughs> I, am, I am 36 years old. And that tree house was like my sanctuary. Like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I want that. <laughs> oh, I love it. And I've always wanted an animal sanctuary where I could rescue farm animals. So that's oh, yeah. my dream one day. This is a great way for you to reignite your appreciation for your local wildlife. All right. So the first category is food. And to certify, you need at least three sources of food. Now you might think that seems like impossible, but it's really not. That's why I said a lot of these you probably already have and you don't even know it. So one Mm -hmm. thing for offering food is just native plants that offer seeds, berries, nuts, or nectar. That's even having just, you know, I have several plants out there that have little bells on them that the hummingbirds come and suck from. And those are plants that were already out there. I didn't plant them. So that's one already that I have had nothing to do with. Having a healthy insect population is another one, which where I live, we have tons of insects. We have woodpeckers and you can actually see holes in the trees of them pecking and getting the bugs out of there. So there's one we already have. And then another one is supplemental bird feeders. So that includes just a bird feeder with seed or a hummingbird feeder. So right there's three really easy sources mm-hmm. of food that you probably already have in your yard. Yeah. And if you're not sure, I know if you go to like say if you go to a big major box store and they have bird seed they have like eight different varieties of bird seed I know it can be overwhelming like going which one do I buy a good place to check we're in Ohio so the Ohio Department of Natural Resources ODNR they have guides for Ohio backyard wildlife they can give you suggestions on what zone you're in even by county of the insects that are around the plants the animals so you can kind of know what to attract so you're not spending your money on bird seed for a bird that doesn't even live near you. Definitely check out your state natural resources department for some guidance there. You can also always chat with Metro Park Rangers that are usually only an email away. I know I've emailed several of them just being a teacher and contacting them with student questions and things like that, but they're a great resource that's free for you as well. A lot of times you can just call them up, say, hey, here's where I live, and they can give you an idea of even endangered wildlife to keep a lookout for, especially amphibians. In Ohio, a lot of there, we have kind of a high number of in, amphibians that are endangered. So if you live in a soggy area, you know, that's something to keep in mind. All right, well, what can I do? What can I look out for? How can I support the ecosystem that needs helped. Yeah. And also we get all of our bird seed and our wildlife corn at a local seed shop, like a feed store. They grow the corn there. Mm -hmm. So you could always, if you have a local shop too, that's somewhere where you're going to be able to talk to somebody who has a lot more experience than if you're at a big box store. It's kind of the same as we talked about going to like a local nursery versus a big box nursery when you're looking to for plants plants for your yard. Yeah. And a lot of times they'll have specials on things. Sometimes they have their corn that's mixed with apples for the deer and stuff. Oh, 
cute. It's I cool. didn't know so, that. So that they don't have that all the time, just their corn we buy regularly. And then we buy our bird seed there, but they have all kinds of stuff. They actually have pet food there too, which is neat because it's all natural pet food. It's the kind we already buy. So sometimes it's on sale. Then we're also supporting a local farm that's down the street. Yeah. Cool. I was going to say also like local garden centers. Mm-hmm. I know around where, where I live, there's a ton and every single one of them is a family owned mm-hmm. garden center. And that's where we've gotten a lot of bird feeders. And I know my family we've got bird baths and stuff. Sometimes they'll have local handmade garden items that are just really pretty. And then you are supporting a local artisan as well. If you have a hummingbird feeder, there's a really easy recipe for making hummingbird nectar. You definitely do not want to buy the nectar that has red mm-hmm. dye in it. No. And, you corn can, syrup. and you can make it very easily. And I have found ones at local nurseries that are made for you that's made with just sugar and water and there's no preservatives or stuff, but you're still spending the money on it and you could do it pretty easily at home. And this will be in our show notes, but it's a fourth cup of sugar, one cup of water. You mix it well and you bring it to a boil and then you cool it and place it in the feeder once it's cool. And then you can put the rest in your fridge for five days. So I normally like quadruple this recipe. So I do four cups of water and one cup of sugar. So that way I can make a lot and I have a glass jar that I keep it in, in my fridge and I can use it throughout the week to Mm. refill it. It just depends on how quick you go through it. We have several hummingbirds here and we go through it pretty quickly. Uh, Make sure you clean out your hummingbird feeder every time you change it as well. And you can get bird feeder brushes and stuff at your local nurseries and stuff and they fit inside and you just have to do a little scrub out. I wonder if you could use like water wipes. My hummingbird feeder is a round glass ball and the hole's like that Oh, the tube. So you need like them like straw thingies. Mm -hmm. And then Mm. like even to get inside of it to clean it because the sugar can mold inside of there. So that's why you don't want to just keep filling it. But you can't even get inside of the ball because of the opening is so tiny. So I have a brush that I use for all my bird feeders and it just goes in and you swish it around with some water. So it's easy to do. And then I refill it and take it back out. But that's a really easy recipe. All right. So that was our first category was food. Remember, we're sharing five of them today. The second thing that you can do is work on water sources in your yard. And your goal is to hopefully have at least one water source. That's if you don't already have like a lake or a pond or a stream, like an already natural water source. A lot of people enjoy adding water sources, you know, as a water feature. People have like waterfalls and little ponds and bird baths can be extremely fancy. Lucky for us, the animals that use the water, they don't care what it's in. (laughs) They're not as picky as we are. So it can be something as, you know, fancy as like a really elaborate bird bath or just like very shallow water dish. Or if you're somebody that's really gung-ho with landscaping, you can get that gorgeous water garden. Just make sure to invite me over so I can come look at it because I think those are so pretty. I know. I know. Yeah. I don't know if I ever want to maintain such a thing no, uh, because one. some some of those without proper maintenance can go awry pretty quickly with algae and overgrowth mm-hmm. and it could become a breeding ground for my least favorite thing on the planet, which are mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we have three bird baths. We have one that goes in the front of our house and it's a pretty like cement column one. So it looks pretty when you pull up. And then we have two in the back. One's a little bit shorter one, which is nice. The deer like to drink from that one as well as the squirrels. I've even seen the raccoon like stand up with his little paws and like drink in it. And then we have a small one that is in our flower bed. That's right outside our dining room window and the birds and the squirrels mostly use that. It's kind of close to the house. So the deer really don't go near it, but it's so pretty just to look out there while you're eating and seeing things coming and drinking and going through. So we have those sources. You only need one source if you're planning on certifying. Mm -hmm. So a bird bath or even just a water dish is something very simple to be able to put out. I definitely want a water feature at some point. We have this spot in our yard we call the gully and there's stairs that go down to it and it's you know uh, made with a stone wall and I would love a water stream feature down there I have big plans for down there when my husband listens to this he's probably rolling his eyes already (laughs) well I love the idea of having a bird bath I mean if you've never actually watched a bird take Mm -hmm. a little bath it is cuter than like a baby with a bow (laughs) like (laughs) it is yeah darling they shake their little tail feathers it is so cute Yes, they're like huge, fluffy. <laughs> oh, it's awesome! Yeah, it's such a fun little nature moment that and that's, makes me stop and breathe, and it's just wonderful. And that's another fun thing you can do if you have a kid too. Is that we dump the water and I scrub it out with a, just a scrub brush, and then we refill it. And my son loves refilling it because then we get to get water into a watering can, and then he gets to pour it in there. So that's something fun for him mm-hmm. too. So speaking of water, something you can do for your wildlife habitat is set up a rain barrel. Yeah. And a rain barrel is basically a huge tub that you attach to one of your gutters on your house and it collects rainwater and you can put a spout on the bottom. We have one at our house mm. and my kids love sloshing over there and, turn, and filling up their watering cans. Um, and that's the water then we use for watering the plants and things like that places where the hose doesn't reach. But if you're in an area where you don't have you know, a hose, a a hookup, or that water is really difficult to access where your habitat is, that's a great way to get some water. So the third category is cover, and you need at least two sources of cover to be able to certify. Once again, these are things that are pretty simple. We already had these. One is dense vegetation, which we live in the woods. So that's pretty easy, as well as a brush or rock pile. We do have like a stick pile um, because Mm -hmm. we have so many branches that come down. And my husband actually turn that into like a little area with some houses underneath that our feral cats go in as well as I've seen a fox go in. And I don't know if the raccoon's gone in there or not, but he's turned into like a little home area. He covered the top with some shingles that we had left over. So that way the rain doesn't come in. And then he covered that with uh, leaves and sticks and stuff. So it looks all natural for them. Oh, but then cool. there's there's two little houses under there for them. That's two easy ways that might already exist. We just got a bat house. We just need to hang it up. And I know you had talked about mosquitoes earlier. And if you live in an area where there are bats, and if you live in an area where there's mosquitoes, which we have really bad mosquitoes where I live because of being in the woods, but we do have bats at night. You can see them circling around the house. It's amazing. They eat a ton of mosquitoes a night. Mm -hmm. So please come live in my yard. Oh, that was a fun (laughs) fact. I'm sure a kid told me at some point. Yeah. How much, how many? Yeah. How many? And it, it's like an insane, think. you're right. It's like an insane amount of 
of mosquitoes that they eat. And building a bat house is a really awesome tween teenager woodworking project. They're not that difficult to create and you can get the dimensions. I know back when I was looking into some dimensions for, oh, one of my students' siblings that was Eagle Scout was working on bat boxes. And we, I think pretty sure we got our dimensions from like ODNR or something. If you're near a Metro Park too, and you have oh, maybe those I got kind from of the sources, Metro Parks. Yeah, we talked with them about ours. We actually yeah. asked for a bat house for Christmas and my brother got it for us, but they gave us some cool tips because they need to be where it's warm so that way they can stay warm so the sun needs to shine on it. They said that you can paint it black so that way if you don't get as much sun where we don't hear, then the little bit of sun that hits it can keep it warm. Mm-hmm. And then um, my husband's also going to make a, a pup catcher because they don't come with that. And that's actually a screen that comes down and then loops out. So that way the babies, if they fall out of it, they won't fall to the ground. They'll get caught in that. I love the that. safety measures. I know. I told him we can't put it up without that. I was like, I cannot come out and see a baby bat on the ground or I will lose it. So... <laughs> We have extra screen and he has like even using like a wire hanger that you unravel, you can attach it and loop it out. And so that way if they fall down, they get caught and then they can climb up the screen and get back in. Wow. So I just found out that fact that we were talking about a few minutes ago is that some species of bats can capture up to 1000 mosquitoes an hour. So one bat, 1000 mosquitoes an hour. That's amazing. Having a bat house is perfect for you if you have a mosquito problem. So these are some of the things like we had talked about earlier, just that having mm-hmm. some of these wildlife in your yard is definitely beneficial. Even like having a possum come into your yard, they eat. It's the same kind of thing. I think it was like 1,400 ticks or something. It's crazy mm-hmm. the amount of ticks they eat. Or if so, you have chickens, chickens eat those. Yeah. If you have, I know groundhogs will eat slugs and like mm-hmm. snails. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have <laughs> that a would come and like get on your garden, <laughs> but they gra- might, well, they will probably dig up your garden as well. So you have to probably put some precautions in there. Yeah. But- we have a groundhog that comes through. We have a possum, we have a skunk, uh, we have a fox, we have raccoons and all of those take care of those kind of things, which is great because living in the woods, ticks could definitely be an issue, especially we have deer and stuff at night. Whenever I turn on the light and I see a little possum out there or something, Thing. I'm like, oh, keep on eating all that, all those ticks. <laughs> Come Thank on you, friend. <laughs> yep. <laughs> One last thing for an idea for providing cover is a roosting box or any kind of birdhouse that you could put up. So that's really easy yeah. stuff. So, I mean, just having like vegetation for them to find cover in and having a birdhouse there, yeah. you have your two sources. The past couple of years, my dad grew gourds to dry them out and we made oh. gourd birdhouses with the kids and we've had birds in those gourds every year. sometimes multiple families because you know the birds are only in there for a little while and then they get kicked out and as long as we can clean it out other birds will nest in there and yeah it's really fun and the nice thing about this is if you're intentionally putting things out for your wildlife then they're not going to be doing things where you don't want them to so they're not going to be nesting in your porch by your front door or something or like even just because we provide corn and stuff for the deer they really leave all my plants alone they're not eating everything because they have a source to eat at and that's something that we learned when we started doing this at the feed store like they were like if you provide an area for them then they're going to leave your stuff alone because they're going to keep going back to that same area being a little bit more intentional can make it a better time 
time for you with your house. And then you're not cleaning up from birds being where you don't want them to be or anything like that. So the fourth category is a place to raise young and you need at least two places for this. And once again, these are some easy ones, trees or shrubs. I'm sure every person has that. If you own a house, you have some sort of tree or some sort of shrub for them to be able to raise young in. Having a caterpillar host plant, if you do have a pond or an area for amphibians or even bird nesting boxes and bird houses. So once again, Mm -hmm. you might already have all of those already or could easily be able to add a little birdhouse. A wood pile. Mm -hmm. If you have a wood pile, that counts towards your certification. If you get a live Christmas tree and you put that in your backyard, that's a great habitat. I know in my school, that was like a really big deal as one of the teachers every year in January, she'd bring her Christmas tree. She would put it on the edge of the playground, kind of a wet far away. And the kids would go out and hike and check and see, you know, mm-hmm. what was happening at the old Christmas tree. And they'd be checking on that thing all the way through May. Your place to raise young, again, it doesn't have to be something that you buy in particular just for this doesn't have to be fancy schmancy wildlife uh doesn't care mm-hmm. as long as it's cozy yep. and in an area or of a material that they enjoy well we even have a side yard is all wooded it's an, an empty lot but it's completely wooded and that's where we blow our leaves into there you know there's a few trees that have fallen and have been left and you see things come in and out of there all the time squirrels mm-hmm. and even our feral cats jump in around there and they made a little nest in it i saw the fox over there it's their natural habitat so even just doing you said having like a stick pile or something like that that they can kind of get in and feel safe Mm -hmm. and one of my kids favorite things to do is to like climb up and balance on like fallen logs and climb and jump around and things like that if you have the ability to leave that in your yard you know a lot of people think oh my gosh this tree fell I gotta chop it all up and if there's a way to push it to the side and leave it leave it Mm -hmm. (laughs) don't waste your time and money if you don't have to and in the the same time you'll be supporting your wildlife. The fifth category is sustainability. There's three groups under this and you need to have at least two practices from the three groups. The first group is soil or water conservation. So this means to limit your water use, compost, mulch, capture rain water from the roof using a rain barrel, use water wise landscaping, use a drip or soaker hose for irrigation, reduce erosion by using some ground cover or terraces. Uh, That's one thing we had to do with our gully that we call it is last year, my husband had to rebuild it because it had completely eroded over and all the rocks that were there were like completely hidden. So he pulled everything out, recut it and rebuilt it Mm -hmm. because it was eroded. That's a way to be able to to conserve your soil as well as your water. Natalie already talked about a rain barrel. That's one thing we just got. And I know I've talked about this in a previous episode that we're getting ready to put our rain barrel out. And I'm so excited about it to be able to use it this summer because I did use a lot of water. So the water usage will be much more limited now. So I'm pretty excited Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. And a compromise, you know, that my husband and I have made is that he can keep his pristine golf course worthy lawn in the front and he is to leave the backyard alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a marriage that needs compromise because your man needs his lawn to be a rolling, beautiful carpeted kingdom mm-hmm. with beautiful lines, <laughs> but like a baseball field, I understand. And I respect that want and need and the care and conscientiousness that it takes to have that type of lawn. So we've compromised where he can do that in the front yard. And then in the backyard, he can leave my bees, all the dandelions that they need. 
And that's something that we have planned in a future episode, probably in the summer, is about organic and natural lawn care. Yeah. Another group in the sustainability category is to control invasive exotic species. So by doing this, you're using native plants that are naturally grown in your area and not introducing plants that are not normally in this area. And that's removing exotic plants and then keeping your cats indoors. My indoor cats stay indoors, but I do have feral cats that I take care of outside. We have no choice because they don't let us touch them. So we care for them, but we do keep our cats indoors. And that's just to help with the population that you have out there. And just a note on invasive plants. I know one of the plants that tends to go wild in Ohio right now is bamboo. If there's a way that you can find a way to sustainably use that plant, if it happens to be overgrowth, or you can control that invasive plant population. I know my dad in particular will take the bamboo, he'll strip it, dry it out, and he uses them for, he builds planting terraces and he stakes his tomatoes and his pepper plants with them. That way he doesn't have to go buy stakes or anything like that. He just uses the bamboo that happens to grow in the corner of the yard. Yeah. And then that's what my students had used back when we grew tomatoes in our school garden. And I was passing those around and the kids got to learn how to stake plants and stuff like that. If you have an invasive or exotic species, you can find a way to use it to help control its population. Again, reach out to your local rangers, your local division of wildlife places will even offer to walk your yard. I know that there are gardening groups and clubs and wildlife habitat clubs. Reach out, find your meetups, find your clubs of people that can maybe come walk your yard and help you identify these things if you cannot identify them yourself. All right, so the last of the sustainability element is organic practices. This is to eliminate chemical pesticides and fertilizers in your yard and to be able to attract beneficial insects. So your pollinators. Um, I have a funny story about this. So we certified our yard several years ago through this National Wildlife Federation. And we have the pretty sign that you'll see as soon as you click on their website in the front yard. And I was outside working in the yard. I think I was finishing up our mulch that we had dumped in our driveway. And we have a no solicitor sign on our door. But when you're out there working and someone walks up your driveway, they're going to get to you before they see that sign. I was like, oh, no. And he comes up and I'm already like, okay, no, thank you. And he's like, (laughs) oh, you know, I'm with whatever company we're going around looking at yards and wanting to sign you up to come spray your yard and whatever. He went through his whole lawn care company. Yeah. This was my way to get out of it is I said, oh, we're a national wildlife habitat. We're certified. So we can't use any kind of chemical pesticides or fertilizers or anything on our yard. And he just was like, oh, oh, I said, yeah, the signs at the end of the driveway, you can see it as you leave. (laughs) (laughs) And he had nothing he could even say back to it because they were not an organic company or anything. And I said, we can't use that. And so he just said, oh, okay, well have a good day. And so then as he walked down, I saw him look at it. He was just like, Oh, like that was interesting. Yeah. (laughs) That little sign saved me from having to have an awkward conversation with a salesman. (laughs) Well, just even having little signs like that does a lot, even for kids. I mean, I know we used to have signs in the garden areas um, Mm -hmm. or the more wild areas of the playground that the kids could play in, but it wasn't necessarily like 
a slide or something, just saying that, hey, this is a nature zone. That was enough to tell kids, oh, this is a different space. Uh, There's expectations that are different here. I'm supposed to be doing something different here. So signs like that not only help keep solicitors away. (laughs) It's also a good way for kids too. Like if you are going to be setting up an area of your deck or your porch or area of your yard, making some signage. I know my, my classic kids, we modge podged the back of a school chair that was busted. Oh, that's super cool. And the kids made little paper artwork of what we had planted. And then we clear Mod Podge on top of it. And like every kid signed the back of the chair. The cha- It was the legs that were busted. So that was our sign for our class garden was this <laughs> rickety metal chair from probably the 1960s. <laughs> and look, you're reusing something. So you're yeah. making it sustainable. So that's oh, awesome. Yeah. And it lasted through some weather, man. We used the, the dishwasher safe Mod podge so that kind of gave it some grit when it was outside and it kept the kids artwork even after the plants died it was like our sign's still there Oh, well, the cool thing about if you do certify your yard and then having that sign out there is it's definitely a conversation starter with even like neighbors walking by, you know, they'll be interested in what that means and what you've added to your yard. We had the water guy here to fix our water softener. He's like, Hey, I saw that sign out there. He's like, tell me about that. And I told him, and he's like, well, I live on, I forget how many acres. And he's like, I bet I could do that to my yard. I was like, you probably could. Mm-hmm. So I told him the website to go to. He's like, I'm going to check that out. It's a neat little way to be able to advocate and share sustainability and your love of the environment with other people who may not know all of that. Totally. And then you can jump on Love the Green Life and buy one of our vinyl Love the Green Life stickers to put on the back of your sign. Yeah. Good idea. Absolutely. I will do this. If you take a picture of your certified wildlife sign and you tag us in it, we will send you something special. I can't really promise you what it's going to be. We would be really excited. Mm This is our little bonus nugget for teachers that if you have the ability to do a really interesting long-term project with your class, this is also something that you can keep going year after year, class after class, is study and plant those caterpillar-loving plants for monarchs. And if you go to monarchwatch.com, .org/waystation. It'll tell you all about their Monarch Waystation project. It's a way for you to register your garden that you created for the monarchs. You can support other schools that have pollinator gardens or that they incorporate monarchs into your curriculum. So if you're not sure how to, you know, stretch that or pull that, they have curriculum ideas and basically they can help you and guide you through facilitating that area in your school as a learning center and a place for students to share knowledge about monarchs and pollinators to the other children in your school building. It's really fun. I know the classes, a teacher that I taught with did this with her class and it became like a legacy. Mm. It really did. Like every class that had her was like, we get to do monarchs, right? Like it Mm -hmm. became this moment, this learning moment that other kids saw and experienced and knew that, hey, like that was kind of a big deal. And I know, you know, tracking them, there's so, so many cool ways you can map them and talk about you know, map skills and, and you can track their whole trajectory and there's virtual field trips where you can see where the monarchs are. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful way to incorporate a wildlife center in your school and for your classrooms or home. 
So where we live in Ohio, there's lakes and birds and all kinds of beautiful wildlife and really beautiful parks. But if you are unable to create a wildlife habitat, you can join a local group that supports the wildlife in your area. For example, if you live in the Portage Lakes in Ohio, it's the Purple Martin capital of Ohio. They have their birdhouses everywhere and they have little feeding frenzies where they'll tell you what food to bring for the Purple Martins. And it's really fun because you can fling the food up in the air and the birds will fly and catch it in the air. And it's super fun for the kids too. (laughs) I love that. Purple Martins, they're actually a really good barometer of the environment because they help keep insect populations in check. And because of that, they drastically reduce the need for insecticides and pesticides and poisons that can really disrupt the ecosystem balance of the Portage Lakes. So that's one of the reasons why they have the Purple Martins there. And it's really fun. Oh, I totally want to do that. Is there a certain time of year? Yeah, they do like little feeding frenzy things. And then they have really strict guidelines on what food you're allowed to bring. Mm -hmm. Well, I know even I've gone to the Metro parks where you can feed the chickadees and stuff and they get- Yes, they'll come right up to your hand. They're so fun. And I know the one that we went to, they have a certain time. I think we were there in like February that they'll do it. But I know there's one closer to us that does it more throughout the summer and stuff. But I know the one up there does it and it's freezing cold out, but it was so worth it. And you get to feel their cute little feet on your hand. It's so cute. I love it. No, that's like one of the coolest memories I have hiking with my dad. So one last thing, you can get to this through the National Wildlife Federation. When you go on their website about certifying, if you scroll down to the bottom, you will see it at the bottom, but it is the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge. And if you click on that, that takes you to millionpollinatorgardens.org. You can also register your garden as one of the million gardens and landscapes that support pollinators. So you just fill out some information about your garden and you give your garden a name, which is cute. (laughs) You give it a description. So what makes your garden unique? How does it help pollinators? And then you can choose if the pollinator site is a corporation, a farm, home garden, a nonprofit, a rooftop garden, and institutions. You can do this for several different things. And then you can say what the size is. So it could be as small as a small planter box or a balcony to as much as a meadow or park or large field, which is like 10 acres or more. It's neat that it's for really any size. So even if say you don't have the space to be able to certify your full yard as a wildlife habitat, you probably, even if you just have some flowers or plants, even just on a balcony that supports pollinators, then you can sign up for the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge. So you can get to that through pollinator.org. We also will have all these links up in the show notes for you to be able to get to that as well as a guide with all the different ways that you can make your yard more wildlife friendly. Thanks for listening to the show. We would love for you to follow us, leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. Your support will help our nonprofit be able to do more good in the world. See you next time.